I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Scott Crone. Uh, Scott is a Chicago native who began as an architect in 1991 um, and sort of throughout his career has become a project manager and essentially uh, looks like in 2012 he opened Coda Management Group uh, as a real estate asset management firm. Um, first of all, Scott, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. And then what I would love to do is if you could just kind of tell us your story, I, you know, I know you started as an architect, but if you want to go back even before that sort of just, just maybe give us a little bit of your background and then, um, we'll kind of hear your story and, and we'll talk about whatever seems interesting. Well, I, I... I didn't follow the traditional path of going into architecture school. Most do it right out of high school, um, but I was uh, recruited to play sports in college. And so, you know, I, I didn't think that the two would necessarily go inside. And so I, I got a master, I mean, I got an undergraduate degree from Kenyon College. And I thought I had closed off that route to uh, architecture, but I discovered in my senior year that there were programs, brand new programs that I could get a master's degree without having a bachelor's in architecture. So that's what I did. I, it took me three and a half years. And I was fortunate enough during that period of time to get connected with a gentleman who was a professor. I was his TA where he owned a real estate development company and did the architecture and the contracting. And it was through that, that I discovered the power of being involved in all aspects of the construction, all aspects of development. So from the developer point of view, the owner point of view, the architectural point of view in terms of controlling the design, and then also from the contracting point of view. And so um, I worked for him for six years, got to work on some very significant projects in multifamily. Uh, one was my master's thesis, which was a $100 million project. And um, I left that company after six years and shortly thereafter started my own firm, Coded Design Build. And we did a combination of residential development um, in single family, multifamily, mixed use. Um, and then, in, as you said, in 2012 and 2013, that's when we began moving more forward into um, the, you know, owning assets and also um, into self-storage, which is what we're currently doing now. And I, I sold off all my multifamily and we've been focusing on self-storage exclusively now in terms of our investment portfolio. And we've even started our own self-storage brand, One Stop Self-Storage. Okay. Great. So, uh, I mean, a couple of interesting things there. And I know uh, I, I also did uh, athletics in college and I understand that, that there's a large time commitment. And so when you're talking about also doing a degree that has a large time commitment, I, I get that <laughs> that sort of um, challenge in, in how much time is involved there. So that's, that's really cool that there was the ability to still, you didn't have to like start over uh, essentially to be able to get your architectural master's degree. I'm curious how you said that $100 million project was your master's thesis. How, how does that look when you're, you're still technically a student? I mean, what, 
what level of involvement did you have? You know, kind of how did that, because I would assume you're still in some ways learning uh, as, as part of your master's degree, but what did it, how did that, I guess, piece together for you? Well, there's 50 students in the class and I was the TA, but I was also taking the class at the same time. And when we say a TA, it wasn't the traditional TA when you think of going to a large school and the TA is actually teaching the class on behalf of the professor in mass lectures. It meant that I was his, truly his teacher's assistant. So whatever he needed, um, I was supposed to fulfill that. And so my contract was 20 hours. So he's, so he bluntly said to me for your TA ship, you're going to work in my office and you're going to work for free. And I said, well, you know, I'm only obligated 20 hours after 20 hours. And I feel it's right that you pay me. So that was my first real estate negotiations. And, you know, in terms of like, you know, making sure that I was compensated Good. for my time. And so in the morning I would go into his office and since I was the only one in the office that had an undergraduate degree in something other than architecture, which meant I could read and write, then I was doing all the financial performance for the project. Okay. And then when I would go to school, we'd be working on the design. So 50 students are coming up with a design concept, which he's working through for, with each student. And then at night, I'd go home and refine that design. So basically from seven in the morning until midnight, for three and a half years, I was working for him, um, you know, or it, during that time period, I, obviously during summer breaks, then, you know, I'd only work from like seven in the morning until six at night. So it's a little bit off. <laughs> a much easier schedule. Yeah. It was, you know, it was much more relaxed. And so of those 50 students, he selected my design and then we were going through the PUD project. So as we were getting comments back from the city in terms of what would be or would, would not be allowed, we were refining that. So it went from like a thousand condominiums down to 316 condominiums, 64 townhomes and 16 single family homes. And so there was a lot changing. And then I was also modeling out financially what the revenue and the projections and all those sorts of things would be. And then, you know, working on the condominium declarations, the loan documents, you know, working with buyer liaisons and all those sorts of things. So during those six years, I was working on that project, but then I was also project manager for other projects that we were starting up and working on okay i mean that that's a phenomenal amount and diversity of experience there and that's i mean it, it sounds like you learned virtually every aspect of the business from uh in from a development standpoint so i'm sure that's a it's a lot of hours to work but it's i mean a, a great you know kind of setup for your future career it sounds like um when you so you were with them for six years and then you moved on to, to work uh, in a management company. Is that correct? Uh, well, I started my own company. You, so yeah. I, I started Coda Design Build in 1998. Right. And we were focusing on development, also design build at that point in time. So our first project, we bought a single family house. We tore it down. We built a brand new one and then we sold it. And then after doing two of those homes, then we bought property and did a townhome development. And we were doing that. And then we did a, a mixed use building. And so we just kept building the portfolio. Plus we were also, you know, people were hiring us to do things for them. Like we worked, we've done a, um, five churches now. We've worked with five different churches. Okay. And so um, it's just a combination of, you know, who was hiring us plus also the speculative deals that we were doing on our own. Okay. Okay. And I mean, I would assume that what you had done, you know, through your master's and in their six years translated well to what you were doing with your own design build firm. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, having all that experience in the first six years, 
allowed me to be incredibly arrogant that at 28 years old, I thought I knew all of it, that I could go out and start my own company at the right, ripe old age of 28, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think the bigger thing is I didn't know what I didn't know. And so, you know, that's, that's when we've, we first launched it. And, you know, we, we obviously started small and we've grown over that period of time. But as I'm doing self-storage now, to me, self-storage is just the more simplistic version of multifamily because it's, it's essentially apartments without toilets or kitchens. And so if I, if I can design, you know, a $100 million self-storage facility, I mean, um, self-storage, I'm sorry, a $100 million multi-unit complex that has condominiums, condominiums, townhomes, single family homes, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And it's only 400 units. I mean, I can design 400 units in self-storage is a fraction of that cost. It's like less than 10%, yeah. but it's, it's a lot more simpler. So I can, I have a lot more flexibility within it. I have a lot more options within it. I have a less, a lot less regulations within it, but I have a lot less exposure as well. And so there's a lot more flexibility. Okay. And I like that, you know, sort of comparison of the two. Now, you know, the cost is much less in terms of the design part of it. How do you feel about it from a return standpoint? So if you're doing these, you know, $100 million uh, mixed use, you know, condos, single family versus a self-storage facility, I'm, I'm guessing the answer is the returns are at least as good since you've sort of transitioned to completely doing self-storage. But how does, how does that compare, do you think? Well, the returns are, I would say, better in self-storage. I mean, because there's a lot less risk. Um, when we do it, we go in with a feasibility study. We know what the supply and demand is for that specific market. When we were doing multifamily, it was and even single family. It was build it and, if, and see if they will come. Right. Um, you know, sort of like licking your finger and holding it up and seeing which way the wind's going to blow. Yeah. You know, and hope you're hoping that they like your design. They're hoping they're going to like your color selections and tile selection, cabinet selections. I mean, there's just so many variables on whether that, you know, whether someone buys it. Um, you know, we were building three and a half, $4 million homes and, you know, people get incredibly picky over their, you know, like what they like and what they don't like. And it, it moves, you know, it's an incredibly fast fluctuation within those marketplaces, whether it's brass or polished chrome or brushed nickel or pewter or whatever it may be. So for me, it was a lot more risk. Um, in those arenas, but, you know, within the self-storage model, it's, it's like Henry Ford said, you can have any color car you want, as long as it's black. Well, in the self-storage model, it's like, you can have any color self-storage you want, as long as it's white and you have a five by five, a five by 10, a 10 by 10, a 10 by 20. So it's a lot easier to, to sell those. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So your, your management company, you said you also own self-storage facilities as well as manage them. And is that, yeah, that's what we're managing our own portfolio of self-storage okay. facilities. And are you and managing so, for other people at all? We are not. So the only our one-stop self-storage is only our products. Okay, great. And what's your portfolio look like now? So we're in, we are in Wisconsin. We have um, two facilities in Illinois. We have two in Ohio and we're working on a third one in Kentucky. And then uh, we have a facility in Maine. And we are under contract for a new facility in um, Virginia, and we're developing, we're building for other people in Florida. Okay. So 
are you mostly buying existing facilities or are you mostly developing them from sort of ground development? All of the ones except for Maine and Virginia um, were all properties that we converted into self-storage. So they were commercial buildings that we converted into self-storage. Okay. That's actually, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, the one in Florida is going to, is a brand new construction and the one in Virginia is an expansion. Now we're, we're negotiating and we're under, you know, we're looking at a property in, in um, Ohio, which will be a new build. And then um, we're under LOI for one in Michigan, which will just be improving on the management of it. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that, that conversion process? Cause I think it's, it's probably easy for people to visualize, okay, I buy, a, I buy an existing self-storage facility and it's maybe poorly managed or it has some room for expansion. We're going to go in there and fix those things. It's probably also maybe easy to envision, you know, a blank piece of land. We're going to put self-storage facility on it. But, but I think the conversion component of it definitely maybe involves a little bit more creativity. And maybe that's interesting to you coming from an architectural background to how do we make this this existing building into something different how, how did i guess when you do that and if you want to use a specific example that's great but when you do that you know sort of what are you looking for in a in a building to decide that you're going to convert it to self-storage and then how does that process work well i, I wouldn't suggest that it's my most creative architectural <laughs> designs <laughs> Um, you know, I think the creativity is throughout the process. There's the creativity in terms of understanding the financial um, sources and uses and the financial structure of how you put the deal together, um, how it's structured. There's the design of how to convert it. And then there's also the uh, creativity in terms of the, the construction ability of it. Um, and so how we, we get that work done. Um, and so there's elements that rely upon experience and, and um creativity to get each of those done. Um, when we are looking at a building, you know, there is the creativity of, of having the vision to determine whether or not the building will be applicable and how to implement that design in order to make it work. Because we have to put in loading docks, we have to figure out elevators to make sure that they work if they're multi-storied, how we address with office spaces, um, and then obviously getting the most efficient layout in the design. Um, the unit configuration is the key to understanding the revenue. So you could have the same square footage of lockers, but if you have the wrong configuration, it can dramatically impact your financial performa and the feasibility of the project. So we have to understand all those factors and then how to make those units work within, within the design. So um, in each of those situations, we work through those processes. So a project that we did, we just finished up and we brought online, in fact, it was our flagship of one-stop self-storage was our project in Dayton. It was an empty building, it was five stories tall with a basement and we bought it for a million dollars in it's a 90,000 square feet. So if I'm looking at that, that is approximately $13 a square foot that we bought it for. I can't build that building for $13 a square foot. So I, I have obviously have a competitive advantage over my competition because of where I'm buying into it at a, at a lower cost basis. So even with my repairs, I'm in my conversion costs, I'm still below what the, the cost basis is for my competition. And so that is one of the, the bigger factors in terms of how we look at a deal. Like what is our cost basis and, and what will be our total end cost comparatively in the marketplace? So a new build might be cost 12 or 13,000 or 12 or 13 million. 
for that size building, but we're in for a fraction of that, maybe like 50 to 60% of that. Okay. So what was the building prior to you take, you know, taking over and turning it to self-storage? What were they using it for? It was empty. It was completely empty. It had been empty for about 40 years. Um, they're renovating the downtown area. And what we saw was a tremendous amount of growth and development right around there with condominiums, townhomes, apartments. Um, and so this building couldn't have been converted into condominiums because they couldn't figure out the parking situation. You know, self-storage, we only need like two or three parking spaces, right. maybe four total. And um, the structural layout of the building prohibited um, underground parking and there was no on-site parking. So it was impossible to convert the building to park, uh, to condominiums, yeah. which allowed us to come in and, and uh, convert it into self-storage. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's, a, that's a great thing, you know, in terms of things you have to think about if you're trying to address this strategy is, you know, what, what, if this building does has been sitting vacant and it's, you know, nobody's found a good use for it there, that's where you're going to use that creativity and say, okay, well, we can't park here, but what can we do with it? So that's, that's great. What is, uh, clearly it's going to be different in every market, but in terms of that conversion, you know, you said it was about $13 a square foot for the, for the cost of the building, but what does it cost you then on top of that to convert something like that to a self-storage facility? It costs us about three, $3 million in construction. Um, you know, and we put on a new roof, we had new HVAC, we had new elevators, um, electrical fire suppression, and, and the lockers. So, I mean, there, there wasn't too much demolition, but the demolition which we had to do was the building was two-sided all windows. And we had to replace all of those fenestrations because some of, they were literally rotting out. They were like the wood was gone. Yeah. And so we spent a lot of money on the windows, which we didn't really need to do. Um, and we, that was one of the key things that we negotiated with the city is how much windows we had to have. I mean, it's obviously better for me not to have windows because there's less heat gain. I can control the environment better. Um, it's just one more thing for people to break, um, you know, especially, you know, car driving by, it shoots a rock into a window, then, you know, I have to replace it. If it's not glass, then I don't have to worry about that. Um, and so, you know, those are the types of things that we, we spent the bulk of our money on. Yeah. But I mean, if you spent 3 million and you got the building for a million and it's, you're saying you could, you would have to spend 12 to 13 to build that building from new. That's obviously, you know, sort of a great deal for you. And uh, I don't know if you have investors or what, but I mean, it sounds like that's a, that's a, a really good way to do it. A good strategy, if you know what you're doing and, and you have a background that sort of contributes to that. So um, that's very, very cool. So when you're, I, I've heard people talk about, you know, self-storage, the, the difference between say that and multifamily is with self-storage, you're buying a business, right? Whereas I, I think you could argue that you're sort of buying a business with multifamily too, but I've, I've heard people make that distinction uh, specifically. Maybe you could give us your thoughts on, on what you think the differences are having, you know, sort of having done both what do you think the differences are in terms of, um, you know, considerations, maybe someone who's thinking, okay, I want to, I wanted to get it. I want to get into one of these spaces, you know, what, what might you list as pros and cons for multifamily versus self-storage? Well, I mean, historically, everybody loves multifamily, like since the crash, you know, everybody and their sister was buying multifamily because that's what banks were lending on. So banks will lend on multifamily 
you know, all day long and twice on Tuesday, right? And as a result of that, you see an incredible cap compression. In fact, when I sold mine back in 2018, I thought we were at the, the height of the, the cycle. And I was, you know, I like to time things, but I, I'm clearly not perfect at it, or, you know, because of the fact that it's gone on another three years and we're still, you know, it's going up. But with multifamily, you're, you know, you're confined by a lot more than just the lease. You know, there's municipal laws, then there's tenant laws and eviction laws and all those sorts of things. So there are, it is a lot more complex on that side of things. So while that is a business, and I agree with you, they're both businesses. Um, the business is more long-term and you're managing those relationships because of the fact that, um, you know, if someone loses a job, if someone gets hurt or gets sick, you know, there's different reasons why they stop paying or, you know, they just don't have the money. And then you have to deal with all those repercussions and if things, you know, they damage things and how do you handle those sorts of issues? Um, and it, it took a great deal of my time managing the apartments. But with, with self-storage, it is a business because it is more transactional in nature. And what we're trying to do is how we're differentiating ourselves is we're not viewing people as customers, we're viewing them as clients and we're trying to solve the problem that is forcing them to use self-storage. There's a reason why they're choosing to use self-storage. And typically that is, there's one of four Ds, divorce, displacement, um, um, they're being displaced, divorced, um, death, and also they're um, being, they have to move, they have to get their stuff out of there quickly. So those are the main reasons. And, and each of those is usually a negative experience. And so what we're trying to do is ease that transition of negative of their life and help make this process as smooth as possible. So at least it's a positive. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so that is the main focus of what we try to do within one-stop self-storage is understand what that, that pain point is for them and then try to make the rest of the process as easy as possible. And so it could be a one month, it could be two months, it could be a year. The average stay is actually three years. And so in each of these situations, it's transactional because, um, you know, we can put on a credit card, you know, if they don't pay, there's a process for that. We don't have to go through evictions. It, it, it lacks the emotion of multifamily. You know, if you show up and someone's crying and there are all these other things, and of course you feel bad for them and you're not looking to evict people. But it is hard to do that. There are times which you have to do it. And like currently during the pandemic, with all these moratoriums on it, you know, people are just, you know, the multifamily is getting, I think, getting crushed because they're not able to necessarily collect rents, but they still have their mortgage obligations. With self-storage, that's not the case. You know, we sell boxes, we sell insurance, we sell tape, we sell pack, packing things. And if you don't pay, we give you notice. And if you still don't pay, then you're locked out. And, you know, until you come and pay, then, then you get to access your stuff. And if you don't pay, then your stuff is removed. So it, it's not a, a matter of life and death, like someone losing a home, but it's just a matter of, you know, it's a transaction. Right. right. Yeah. Take, take some of that, you know, emotional human component out of when there's a problem, right? It's just that there's, you know, and, and the problem generally in these situations is, is, People can't pay their rent, whether it's multifamily or self storage. So if you're you're removing their thing, you know, sort of evicting them from a storage unit, they're not, you know, they're not going to live on the street, right? They're just their stuff is, you know, they, they can't have as much extra stuff. Kind of is is how it goes. So yeah, I I I, I see that, and I, it does seem like it's probably uh, an easier management process. And do you 
um, you already said, you know, you think that the um, returns are better in self-storage. You mentioned cap rates compressing in multifamily. They, they've compressed in self-storage too, right? That's, I mean, that's not exclusive to multifamily, but do you think not as much? Is, is that sort of what you would say uh, in terms of what the cap rates have done? Uh, they are compressing for sure. So whether or not they are as much, I think it's different. Um, I mean, when Warren Buffett, when Blackstone, when, you know, you're seeing these billion dollar transactions and the cap rates getting around four and a half, um, that is significant, right? But the, the main difference is when you're looking at a, a multifamily, it's not like you can expand multifamily. It is what it is. You can't really alter it. And typically you're not, if it's, if it's trading at a five cap, you're not really looking to improve the performance of it. You're looking for a yield. And my cousin um, who's out of Seattle, I mean, he's buying these on behalf of like massive unions, like the masonry union and stuff like that. And they're going in and buying these cash because of their, they need an adjusted rate of return in order to keep the pensions growing in order to keep up with inflation. So when you're dealing with that level of competition, it's a different matter for us. We can improve upon the management. If we buy an under, under managed facility, we can expand it. We can change the configuration. There's just a lot more options that we're able to do because of the fact that, you know, for instance, we had a facility which the 10 by 20s were sold out, but the 10 by 10s were not selling. So we took out the interior wall and made the 10 by 10s, 10 by 20s, and then they all leased up. It, it was as simple as that. It's like unscrewing a wall putting it on the end, screwing it back in, we save the wall. And then, you know, we have that flexibility, but you can't do that within multifamily. And so in that sense, it is different between the two, but more importantly, I think that we have a better understanding of what the market is and what, what we need to provide for that market. We understand the demographics, we understand the medium income, we understand the square foot, the saturation late rates, the square foot per capita of lockers. And so we, we have a much better, broader sense of what that market is so that we can tailor our product to it. And so in that sense, they're, they're different. And as a result of it, you know, managing self-storage is different than uh, multifamily. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it, it, it's probably more easy to objectively quantify all of those factors that you were just talking about in, in self-storage than it would be in multifamily with, you know, where you said, yeah, okay, here we have, if, if all the 10 by 20s are, are, there's a great demand for those, but not for 10 by 10, it's a simple change. Whereas if you're in a market, you have a multifamily building and everybody wants a two bedroom and all you have is one bedroom, it's not, it's not quite so easy to just kind of make two tiny bedrooms in there. It doesn't, it just doesn't work as well. So I, I totally understand that. Here, I can um, give you, I can give you a different example of this. In Dayton, where we have this project, the city was trying to force the building to be a different use. It was zoned for self-storage and they were holding back our, our financing with a, a government program until we capitulated in some ways. And so they determined that it would be best to have a, um, the first floor being retail. Now, most self-storage operators don't want two different uses. They want it all to be self-storage because it's a lot easier to manage. So they told me that they wanted a coffee bar. And I looked up what the average size Starbucks was and it was around a thousand square feet. So I said, fine, I'll, I'll give you 1200 square feet of my first floor in the prime corner. And um, if 
I'll charge the same rent per square foot as my self-storage. And if I can't lease it up within one year, I want to be able to convert it all to self-storage. And they said, and that was $15 a square foot. And they said, no, we want you to do $4 a square foot. And I'm like, well, if it's such in demand, why would I take a 12, you know, $11 a square foot discount in order to put in this product that you're telling me that is in such demand? And we finally agreed upon $12 a square foot, okay? And we've had it on the market now for eight months. I've gotten one offer. And they wanted me to give them back a TI, tenant improvements, to the tune of $70,000, which they would then build out themselves. So I would have to pay them whatever cost that they thought, whatever they showed me in terms of their labor or materials, okay, which they were obviously going to inflate the cost. So basically, I was going to pay them to live, to work in my building for three years before I would make money. I'm like, why would I do that? Yeah, yeah. That doesn't, I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. It's upside down, right? Okay. So, and they, and they had, they came to us and said, well, um, you clearly don't want to rent it. I'm like, I'm willing to rent it. If you want to rent it, we'll rent it. Here's the terms, $12 a square foot. And they're like, well, you're not going to negotiate. I'm like, nope, $12 a square foot. And the reason why I say that is because that way I, they, the city can't complain that I'm overcharging, right? If I say it's $12, I'm holding $12. And they came back to us and said, well, it's not advantageous for us to rent from you. We can rent from somebody else. So go ahead. I'm, you know, at that point, if I was trying to compete in the marketplace, I would have to understand not only what the base rents were, is it triple net, is it gross? What sort of TIs are they giving? What sort of incentives are they providing for the person? What's being included in the basic package for that 11 or $12? Is it built out? Is it not built out? All these different variables, which makes it a whole much, lot more complex than just saying, Here's a self-storage locker. Do you want a five by five or a five by 10? Yep. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, uh, it, it's a, uh, yeah, I guess when the cities get involved, they'd always <laughs> throw some monkey wrenches into plate people's plans and, and you know, start trying to dictate the use of those buildings. It doesn't, it just doesn't make, doesn't, it doesn't really make it better for the city either to, to put those demands on and then you can't actually use it in any way. So um, sometimes that, that red tape can be difficult. Um, uh, it's very, I mean, it's, it's very interesting stuff. Let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit, Scott. I want to kind of get to the point where, where I can ask you the questions that I typically ask each guest. The first one is, it really has to do with the, the title of the show being know your why. So, so what is your why? What, what's your driving motivating factors at this point in your career? Uh, well, I, I've, just, I've begun a, a two year program of transformation. And uh, we meet quarterly and we're going through different elements um, to identify how to become a better leader. And, you know, for me, what I've identified is I want to have significance. I want to have significance on the people that I work with, the people that we work for, and also uh, my family and my friends. And so I, I want to leave a, a, a mark or legacy of significance in, uh, in other people's lives. So that's my why. Okay. Can you tell us about that that program? Um, do you have a life coach or a, a something, someone kind of guiding you through that? Like yeah, it's it's a, it's led by a, a woman named Ruth Haley Burton. It's called the Transforming Center, and um, we meet quarterly. And when we do, we leave on a Sunday afternoon, and it's uh, it goes until Tuesday around lunchtime, and it, it usually involves you know 
long periods of uh, solitude and silence and just unplugging, recharging, um, listening and, you know, paying attention as opposed to always filling your head with stuff. And so, you know, we're, we're studying different elements um, that the, you know, let's just say the the foundational or the original church looked at it in terms of the, the disciplines of the faith. And the idea of it is, is we learn these disciplines, we learn to grow in them and identify which ones work for us. Then we can become more effective leaders because we're not being swayed by the latest and greatest things, but we can have a means of refocusing, re-energizing and, um, and making sure that what we're doing is, is right and, and best for our organizations. That's yeah, that's very cool. I- that stuff is, um, I think, incredibly important just for, you know, sort of as a, as a business owner and as a leader, just having the ability to, to maybe take a step back from that, you know, sort of constant go, 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 I got to make this business, you know, function to being able to actually focus on yourself and what, what makes you a more, you know, uh, inspirational, whatever the word you want to use, you know, someone that, that can, can really lead your, lead your team. So I think that's, that's awesome. Um, I think, I, I, I don't know if it's the same program, but I've heard, you know, similar things where there's, you know, sort of a, uh, regular retreats. So I think it, that's a very cool, um, it's nothing, I haven't done it yet, but it, I, every time I hear about those, I'm very, very interested. Um, second question is maybe you can tell us something about yourself that isn't common knowledge. So, uh, you know, special skill, a hobby, um, whatever it might be that you're, you're comfortable sharing that, that maybe not a lot of people know about you. Well, I think that the last thing I shared was, you know, not a lot of people know about that. I, I, I began this process. Um, and I, th- I think a lot of people don't really get it or understand it. And so the reason behind it, I think a lot of people don't get. And for me, the more effective that I can understand what's really going on inside of me, what's inside of my heart, then I can better communicate that to others. And so, um, you know, it, it is a very personal thing, a journey, if you will, it's a, it's a two and a half year, um, nine, nine sessions. And we're on our fourth one coming up in November. And a lot of it is, um, you know, you, you arrive, we have a session, and then you're in silence from like, say, five or six o'clock until eight o'clock the next morning. And then you'll be in silence again from like uh, 11 or 12 until six o'clock. And so you're, you're going under long periods of time of just unplugging. And, and I think that a lot of people find that unusual and they find that um, intimidating and a little weird, perhaps. And, um, you know, but the things that I enjoy most is like, how I can take those disciplines and for instance, wake up at five 30 in the morning and go paddle boarding on Lake Michigan, where it's completely silent, you know, and I, you know, I'm unplugged and I can just be out on the lake for 20, 30 minutes in silence and solitude um, during that period of time. And, you know, how, what that does for me and how it recharges me and how it's been, you know, in many ways, a lifesaver um, during some very challenging times. And so, you know, but also good times because I can be reflective and thankful for, you know, the good things that are happening, but also reflect, reflecting and thankful for the challenges and what I've learned from them. Yeah. Yeah. I think being able to be alone with your own thoughts and, and, you know, kind of disconnect, like you said, in those, that, that is, I admittedly, I'm not good at it. So I, I think that is a very valuable skill that, you know, especially as you, 
become more of a leader and things like that. You really have to have to be able to do that work. So I, I mean, good for you. I, th I think it's very cool. Uh, I'm sure people think it's weird, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think mo most, uh, you know, mo most self uh, empowering things, people initially want to poo poo and say it's weird, but really I did it. My wife went through the program first and, you know, it was five years later said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> but, right. you know, it's like, right. At first I'm like, <laughs> you're doing what? <laughs> Yeah, and it's just it's just the um, it's, there's no sense trying to force someone into it, right? There, you just have to reach the point where you're willing to accept that sort of stuff yourself. I mean, I, I've I've uh, much of my life sort of poo-pooed all the the mindset type of you know talk, and 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 now I'm like now now I talk about it all the time, and I'm that person, and I just I think it's uh, it just takes time to coming around and 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 realizing how it can work for you. So um that's yeah that's very very cool um so when people hear this how can they reach out to you what's what's the best and we'll put in the show notes but um what's the best way for for people to get in touch well, the best way is info at coda c-o-d-a m-g for management group.com that's info at coda m-g.com and jason for your listeners if anyone mentions this show and they want to learn more about um self-storage and why it's a viable business model we will send them uh, a feasibility report that we did for our project in Dayton, the one that I referenced. It explained why that site would be good for self-storage. And it, it, it's like 175 pages, but it talks about the overall market, but then specifically that location and, and what makes that location good. And so it's just something that we can give people that, um, you know, it, a historical project that we did and, and why, you know, why we believe in that location. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. I think people will really get, uh, I'm interested. I think, I think that'll be, it, it's really good to see, you know, kind of what goes into starting these projects. There's a lot of things that people don't probably think about and, you know, the doing those feasibility studies, I think is a, is a huge part of it, especially as you mentioned with self-storage. Um, final question for you, Scott, it, I, would, I would love it if you could maybe give a piece of advice um, to people that even if you think back a few years, what what you know sort of things would have might you have done differently? What what would you have said to yourself, you know, a few years back as you're going through your journey? <laughs> I, I thought you said this was only an hour. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we can we break it up into two different episodes. I, I yeah, I'm sure there's there's lots of it, but maybe a few. <laughs> A few short points uh, that would be good in terms of what you think you could tell people from your experience, which is obviously uh, a lot of it. I think when, I, when we began this conversation, which I really enjoyed our time together. So thank you again for that. Um, I talked about the arrogance of being 28 year old and thinking that I knew it and you know enough to start my own company to be able to support my family as we were growing and developing and all those sorts of things. And I would probably say that I, I didn't do enough of the due diligence. And there's, as my mentor said, there's a difference between being lucky and being successful. Anyone can do something once and be lucky, but to, to do it and do it well time and time again, that's the true definition of success. And I think our culture gets focused on the one-offs like the one hit wonders, or, you know, if I'm an influencer and I can do this and I can have a quick million dollars as opposed to it, it's a long journey. And I think if you want to be good at something, it takes a lifetime of discipline to do it. 
And that's where he talks about, if you, are you a professional? Are you an expert? Or are you the authority? And, you know, in order to become the authority, then you really have to know all elements of what you're doing and more importantly, why you're doing them. And then taking the time to step back and say, okay, where are we going to go in the future? And I don't, I didn't have that perspective when I was 28. You know, I thought I would be the authority if I just did a hundred homes or 500 homes right. or something along those lines. Right. But that's, that's not the definition of authority. Authority understands and looks for the, the landmines and knows how to navigate around the landmines. And more importantly, you're not going to be able to control all of those. So when a landmine does pop up or rear its ugly head, that you know how to, you know, address it, but, or find out the necessary people in order to, to address those problems. And I think that's where, you know, professionally I've grown the most is um, being able to recognize those things and, and have the foresight to do it. And a lot of that has to come from understanding myself better, you know, in, in those steps that I've made over the last five, six, seven years to understand what drives me, what motivates me, how I respond to different things. And um, so that's taken a lot of time and effort. So I would, I would say invest in yourself so that you can best understand how to deal with adversity. Yeah, no, that's, that's really great. And I think it it's, speaks to the point of, you know, a lot of people look at, you know, the, the Jeff Bezos, the Elon Musk's of the world, you know, these, these, you know, Grant Cardone and real estate, I mean, people look at these fig, almost like figureheads as, as like, wow, look, they just got here. They just, you know, overnight success and, and all of a sudden things blew up, but often don't, we often don't see the work behind it. We don't see the 20, 25 years of grinding and grinding to then reach that point where you're, you know, ultra successful. And it's like your, your, your point about it sort of being a, a lifelong, you know, kind of pursuit to become that authority is, is, is very true. And it's, it's just not probably just about anyone can do it if they want to put in the work, but it does, it's not fast, right? It's not, it's not a, an over, there aren't, there are no overnight successes really. Absolutely. I mean, when I was coaching real estate, people say, well, I, I want to have, um, you know, $200,000 of passive income with no money down in, in the next 12 months. And I'm just like, well, then might as well go put your money on the lottery. I mean, right. you're, you're right. not going to do that in 12 months in, in, in real yeah. estate. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't exist. That's not, if you win the lottery, I guess you're, you're overnight <laughs> success, but then you're, you're uh, very likely to just blow that money. So I think it's something that it's, uh, you have to realize realize it's a long haul and and you know uh <laughs> to plug my own show you need to know your why you need to have that that strong motivation to to keep going because it's it's going to get hard along the way so um that's no that's a, that's a great perspective scott thank you thank you so much I, I really appreciate your time i appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all this with us um it's been a great discussion and think uh, you are my first self-storage um, centric guest. So uh, thank you for that. Um, I don't know if that means I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no I, I honestly, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's very interesting. And it, I, I have, I'm in a self-storage joint venture myself, and it's, it's, it's very different from the multifamily um, in a lot of ways. B both are good, but yeah, there, there's a very different perspective. So it's, it's really cool to hear someone who's uh, been doing it at such a high level. So, so again, thank you. Thank you for sharing all your insight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and get out of here. Have a good day, everyone. Take care. I'd like to show you why knowing your why 
is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.